the scripture reading today is Matthew 26, verses 36 through 75. If you will, if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two, the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your swords back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you, come out against, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him in a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming of the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophecy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. We're getting close to the end of the book of Matthew. We've been reading through the entire book. It's been wonderful just to spend time in God's Word, spend time in the Scriptures every morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our series on meaningful membership. Um, and as I mentioned last week, we're, we started talking about uh, the organic aspects of membership. What does a church do? Uh, we talked about what a church is, and now we're talking about what does a church do, um, and, 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 what, and who is the church, and things like that. Um, we've been using this book called I Am a Church Member. It's by Tom Rayner. He's the president of Lifeway, uh, president and CEO of Lifeway. If you want a copy of the book, they are right here on the front. Feel free to grab one. It's a short read. It's an easy read, but that'll help you as you are guided through uh, what we're going to be doing over the, over the next several weeks up until the beginning of June. Um, so let's, we, you, can, you can feel free to grab one. There's no, no cost. Um, that, that's free for the taking. If you're a seminary student like I have been, free books means uh, everybody's going to rush to the front. So please take a free book. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let us pray. Lord, I pray as we walk through this passage and we look at this concept in your scriptures of unity, Lord, we would actively seek to be a unified congregation. Lord, I pray against those things that would destroy unity. Lord, things in our church that would destroy unity is from the devil himself. Lord, I pray against those influences. I pray that you would have your glory in your church. 
and that the devil would not have a foothold in here. I pray this in your name. Amen. Talking about unity, how many are excited about football season coming back up? Right? I know some people that once football season's over, they're already ready for the next season to start. College football, football, whatever it is, or any team sport. Now, you, can you imagine, what, do, what does a team usually do in their offseason? They take a little bit of a break, but then before the season starts, they do what? They go to camp or training or something, and what are they doing during that time? They're, they're getting back, to, back on the top of their game, but part of what they're doing is building unity as a team. Now imagine if the Dallas Cowboys came running onto the field, or the Patriots, or the Packers, or some you know, international team like Brazil or something like that, you know, uh, for, for international football, right? We've got to make sure we cover all the bases, right? Um, thank you, Mike. Um, but imagine that they went to their training, and they came back, and they could not stand each other, Right? Dak Prescott is the worst, most annoying person, and nobody wants to listen to him or follow his leadership, right? Aaron Rodgers, nobody wants to listen to him. That Tom Brady guy, whatever, hopefully he's retired by now, but, you know, that guy, if nobody likes him, nobody wants to follow his leadership, nobody respects the coaches, nobody cares. I don't know any of the Brazil team people, so I'm sorry. I can't use any of them as an illustration, but... Imagine that scenario. How far is that team going to get in the season? Not very far. Without unity, the team will fail. Guaranteed, the team will fail when there's no unity. On the other side, a team could be not necessarily the best team in the league, not necessarily the best team on the, as far as from what outside appearances would look, but if they are a unified team. They could actually take the championship, right? They could go all the way, even if they don't have what looks like might be the talent. So here we come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. This is perhaps one of the best passages to see what a church ought to look like. We could, we could go through the entirety of the, of the chapter through to verse 16 and get a really great picture of what the church is supposed to look like. We're going to focus in on verses 1 through 3 and then look at, look at what other passages of Scripture say about unity. Really what we have in the beginning of this section in Ephesians chapter 4, we have not just what some people in the church are to look like, but we have what all Christians and what the church is supposed to look like. He starts off by giving us this call to be unified by a divine call. Unified by a divine calling. This is not in your notes. Um, I'll, I'll let you know when that is. If he starts out, he says, I therefore, this is Paul speaking, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. At this time, Paul is in prison, writing to the people in Ephesus. A prisoner for the Lord. Notice he doesn't say a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner for the Lord. He's focused there. And where his, where his allegiance lies and what, you know, that he is in prison for the glory of the Lord. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That right there is a heavy statement all on its own. We could do an entire sermon on just that phrase. We have a lot more to deal with, so I won't do that to you. But first of all, we see this verb here. It says, he urges you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does this word mean to walk? Is this saying that, that the way you walk is like the way that you move your feet? 
as you go down the street, that this, this action must bring glory to the Lord. Of course not, right? So this word, when he says that you must walk according to, uh, according to the calling which you have been called, this word walk means to conduct one's life. That means everything that you do. There's no division here between sacred and secular, like what you do at church is more important than what you do out in the fields, than what you do at your place of work, than what you do when you're 30,000 feet in the air. There's no divide between sacred and secular. Every decision we make ought to be guided by the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our own wants, our own desires, and our own wishes, if you were a Christian, are now out the window. My dream to, desire, to retire and live on an island in isolation is no longer possible. As much as I would love to do that, it's no longer possible. Instead, my life must be about taking the gospel to the nations. You can't do that in isolation. My desire to have my children be my best friend first is no longer possible. Instead, I must train them up in godliness, even if they don't like me for it. My desire to own the best cars, the best house, the best toys no longer matters. Growing up, my parents would tell me that I was a bigger, better, best kind of person. And that's how I was growing up. If I found out there was something better, that's what I wanted, right? My parents might say that's why I was trying to get more degrees and go to school for longer because there was something better that I could do, right? And until I had the best, it wasn't good enough. And so growing up, that's how it was. So, I mean, my favorite car growing up was a Dodge Viper. And then I found out there was cars that were more expensive and way better. And guess what I wanted? One of those cars. But now that I'm a servant of the Lord, now that I'm a Christian, that no longer matters. It doesn't matter what the greatest car is, what the best toys are, whether or not I have a boat, whether or not I have the best camper. Those things don't matter anymore because the only thing matters is Christ. The only one that matters is Christ. And the only thing that matters is being found under his lordship. That's it. Now, before you say, well, you have to say that, you're a pastor. Does this passage make that clarification to say, well, pastors, you must walk worthy? No. This is a given to every single Christian, every believer. So I ask you, are we united with each other as a church to this divine call? Or are we all following our own individual callings? Well, I want to do this, so I'm going to do that. Well, I want to do this, so I want to do that. So I want to do, and I want to do. And it's not about what does Christ want us to do. What does Jesus want us to do? We must also be unified by Christ-like conduct. We are united by a divine calling, and we are united by Christ-like conduct in this passage. We might ask the question, what does it look like to walk worthy, right? It says, walk in a worthy, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, the next two verses explain that. And it looks like Jesus. If you read this list, 
the person who best, ex- best exemplifies each of these characteristics is Christ himself. The more we live like Christ individually, the more we will live like Christ relationally, and the more united we will become. Put it the other way around. Disunity comes to a church when we look less like Christ individually and less like Christ relationally. When we fail to live like Christ relationally, that's when we see disunity. And he gives us several characteristics how to do this, right? Walk in this worthy, in this worthy manner. In verse 2, it says, with all humility. Starts out there in this list, with all humility. Humility. Pride in the days of the early church was highly valued. In the culture of the time, pride was one of the greatest things you could do. If you could be proud about what you were doing and proud about yourself, that was a high virtue. That doesn't look much different than our own culture, does it? Paul, what Paul is doing is he is calling them to be countercultural. Your culture says pride is the greatest thing you can do. I'm calling you to be humble. Christ calls us to be humble. Our culture says something similar. We say exalt yourself. Pamper yourself. Think about yourself first. But that's the very problem that we have as a society. Pride. Bring, uh, pride means being filled with the self, with ourselves. Humility is being filled with God first, and then considering others more important than ourselves. Timothy Keller put it this way, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more or less of myself, but rather it is thinking of myself less. It's not, we sometimes think of humility as like, well, I'm just really bad at that, and well, I can't do that, and I'm not good at that. That's called false humility, right? Because your focus is still on yourself. Real humility is when I'm not considering myself anymore. It's not, I'm not as interested in making sure I get taken care of as much as I am making sure other people are taken care of. That's what humility really looks like. It's thinking of myself less. Next thing he says here is in gentleness. Gentleness is Mild is being mild-spirited or self-controlled. Gentleness is not always just being nice to people or just having a soft hand. There are strong leaders that are also gentle, Moses being one of them. One of them. Moses was a strong leader, but he was described as being gentle. It's mild-spirited or self-controlled. We are not to bully people in the church to get our own way, but rather gently care for one another. I teach my son this, right? He's going to have a baby sister soon. If he doesn't learn how to be gentle, he's going to hurt her, right? Gentleness is him to be self-controlled in the way that he handles things. So when he's playing in the tub and he starts kicking around and waving his arms around and splashing all over the place, I tell him, be gentle. It's really cute what he does. He stops and he goes like that in the water instead. Right? Be gentle. Try to teach him. Be gentle. Be gentle. Same thing for us. We must be gentle. We must be self-controlled in the way that we care for one another and the way we deal with one another. Next thing he says here is with patience. I love how Amber brought this up. And I'm even going to use Elisa's illustration. It's a great illustration. 
when you really have to use the bathroom and you've got to be patient, that's hard, right? To not think in your mind as the other person comes out of the bathroom, why didn't you take a little more time with her? Why not, huh? How come you didn't take more time? Come on, right? And to think all sorts of mean things about them, right? Instead, a patient person would say, all right, cool, it's my turn now. Good, right? Right? And it's not a problem, right? Patience here. A lack of patience shows a lack of humility and a lack of love. See how these things are connected? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says that love is patient. To have patient love, we must endure annoyances and challenges over a period of time. How hard is that? Road rage, anyone? Nobody's raising their hands and leaving me all hanging. There you go. Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> right? <laughs> Somebody's doing something you don't like what they're doing. You're sitting in your car and you're yelling at them. Maybe some ungodly things are coming from, out of your mouth if you're by yourself in the car. Right? And you're, just, you're so annoyed at that. Is that patience? No. Now think of that in a church setting. Being annoyed at whatever it is. The bulletin had my name spelled wrong again. I can't believe that. He didn't play the song I wanted him to play. How dare he? Or whatever the case may be. And we get annoyed. Maybe, maybe somebody has done something to you and that stirs up over and over in your mind. It's not patience with one another. To have patient love, we must endure these annoyances and challenges over a period of time. It's very difficult to be patient with people. Careful, Bob. I, thought, I saw him, like, touching on his wife, and I'm like, are you trying to say she annoys you? Come on, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, that's where my brain went. You got to be careful what you're doing out there in the audience. I see you. No, just kidding. Just kidding. I know Bob loves his wife very, very much. But Christ is patient with us, so we can be motivated by his example. If we were to be patient with each other, just think about Christ's patience with us, that he's still saved us despite knowing exactly what we would do every single day of our lives. Next it says here, accepting one another in love with patience, bearing with one another in love. This means to put up with each other in love, right? This really does look like marriage, does it not? Peter says it this way, love covers a multitude of sins. This is the only way a marriage can work is if we love one another patiently, if we accept one another in love. If I was married to me, I would have killed me a long time ago. But my wife puts up with me because she is just incredibly accepting and loving to me. Why? I don't know, okay? Neither do you, right? When you guys figure it out, you might want to tell me because then I can understand her better because I don't get it. You must accept one another in love. That's the only way a marriage can work, and that is the only way a church can work, is accepting one another in love. And then it says here, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice this is not a passive thing. Sometimes we think of unity as like, well, we just are unified, right? It just is that way. No, the way Paul says it is that you need to be eager to maintain it, to keep it that way. It is an active process. Maintaining unity in a church is an active process. It's not to create unity as if it's something that does not exist either, but to keep 
the unity. God has already united us, and we are to seek to maintain that unity with the Holy Spirit's help. The church is unified, and God is glorified when we live with this kind of Christ-like conduct. So let's turn to your turn to your um, your insert in your bulletin, and let's look at some some principles that we see can see about unity as we as we move to this section of the of the message. First of all, your first blank there: unity in churches is a gospel issue. Unity in churches is a gospel issue. It should be on the other side of yeah of the prayer of the prayer one, the prayer bulletin, uh, the prayer insert. So, unity in churches is a gospel issue. If you can turn with me to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two verses one through eleven is one of my favorite passages, and it's one of the hardest passages to live out. Listen to this. Talking about unity, listen to how Paul explains this. So if there's, any incur- if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any ex- affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind. This sounds like unity. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The church must be unified on their mission, unified in how they act and work together. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind of humility. Now look where he goes to to find out, to explain where our humility should come from, this, this humble unity that we must have. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, unity is a gospel issue. We must be unified because Christ has died for our sins. And we all have that in common. We'll talk a little bit more about this passage next week, but notice the motivation and example for unity through humility. It's Christ's death on the cross. And that's the reason that we must humble ourselves, put aside our wants and our preferences, and to keep unity. If we do not keep unity or pursue unity, if we want to complain and complain and complain, there is something wrong with our relationship with Jesus. It's not your relationship with the church that is wrong, it's your relationship with Jesus that is wrong. Unity is not some option on a menu. It's not something that you pursue only if uh, the thing that we are unified around is something that you care to do. Right? Well, I don't want to do that thing. So I don't really don't need to see I don't really see why that matters to me. 
Is that what scripture is saying? No. Unity is a gospel imperative. It's a command. It is something we must actively keep and maintain because of the gospel. Second on your, on your outline there. We are known by our love for one another. Jesus tells us this in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Now, how do we love one another? Just as I have loved you. Pause right there. How did Jesus love us? He gave his life for us. Jesus says that's what love looks like is that we sacrifice ourselves for each other, even if it means death. You also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you know that that's how people in Gordon, Texas, know whether or not we are believers? By our love for one another? If all the community hears about is our dissension and our fighting and our disdain for each other, how the older crowd doesn't like the younger crowd, the younger crowd doesn't like the older crowd, and the pastor nobody likes, how in the world are we going to reach the community for the glory of God? It's impossible. We are known in our community by our love for one another. If we do not love one another, according to Jesus, we are not his disciples. At least we're not acting like his disciples. So our care and concern for one another, our pursuit of unity, our humility towards one another is directly related to our love for Jesus. Again, if we are not unified, if we do not care for one another, even across generational lines, not just your Sunday school class, even across generational lines, if we are not loving and caring for and unified around with one another, and if we do not act humbly toward one another, what Jesus says is we do, we do not ultimately have a problem with each other. Ultimately, we have a problem with Jesus. This brings us to our third point. Gossip and other negative talk destroys unity. Gossip and other negative talk destroys unity. Turn with me first to Romans chapter 1, if you're able. Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, gives us an interesting list. Talking about people who are unbelievers, talking about people who are ungodly, the people who have rejected the Lord, it says they were filled, verse 29, Romans chapter 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Paul's telling us this is what sin produces along with murder. We think of murder, we think, yeah, obviously that one's wrong, 
right? Murder's bad, we don't do that. But look at some of these other things. Teenagers, pay attention. Kids, pay attention. Disobedience to parents is mentioned in there. That is sin against the Lord. But back to our point here, notice that gossip and slander are sandwiched in in this long list of things that we would say, well, of course that's ungodly. And here we have gossip and slander put right in the middle of that. We live in a small community. We live in Gordon, Texas. Gossip and slander are pet sins of the small community. Small communities are great and really, really, really good at gossip and slander. It becomes part of the lifeblood of what we do in small communities oftentimes. Some dictionaries define gossip as idle talk. Some connect it to rumors and spreading rumors. Others say that it's unproven personal or private information about others. Whatever those things are, we see that gossip is bad. Gossip is destructive to every church and any church. Few things can destroy a church like gossip can. A unified church, on the other hand, is powerful. A unified church is powerful and can march right into the gates of Satan. A disunified church that is disunified by gossip will be torn apart. That unity will be torn apart and be rendered powerless against the enemy. In the book of James, he does not mince words when he talks about the negative power of the tongue. In James chapter 3, in verse 6, James says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Tongue is powerful. Let me give you two things related to gossip, how we can deal with gossip. One, don't be a source of gossip. Don't be the person starting the gossip. If you have any doubt whether something is gossip or not, just don't mention it. Keep your tongue under control. I think the theological word is shut up. Right? Secondly, if someone in the church begins to share gossip with you, you know what the godliest thing you can do at that point is? Gently rebuke them. Gently, right? Gently rebuke them. You don't have to be harsh in your response to them. Just kindly say that you would rather not hear gossip, that you would hope that it wouldn't spread, it wouldn't continue to spread. You can be a unifier in your church with just those simple words. I don't want to hear gossip, and I really hope that it doesn't continue to spread. I've been in many churches in my short life. I know many of you have been, are double if not more, or not uh, more than double my age, some of you. Wayne is one of them, right? Oh! I've heard a lot of gossip in my time in different churches. We even like to mask this gossip as like prayer requests, right? Have you heard about so-and-so? Pray for their grandson. He just did X, Y, and Z, right? We like to do that. And here's another thing that we need to remember. This is not just women. Usually when we think of gossip, we automatically think of the ladies chit-chatting, right? Never, never, right? Why on earth? 
There you go. But it's not just women. I've heard deacons gossip about people in the community that they're supposed to be serving. And they've ruined rep- people's reputations by just sharing gab, even at a deacon's meeting. Pastors can be ruled ineffective in their community because someone misheard something he or she said in a sermon and told everyone in the community about what they misheard. I'm going to use an illustration here real quick. Uh, you guys, are, some of you remember uh, Wes, Pastor Wes. He came last summer and, and helped us out with our vacation Bible school, and some of you guys got to re- know him really well. Uh, Wes was preaching a sermon one time, and he was talking about being intentional about the Bible you pick. Right? It was, it was a great sermon. His, he meant well, but one of the things he said in the sermon, he said these words, although this is not what he meant. He said that he uses a, he always likes to pick a black Bible so that when he's in a public place, people know that it's a Bible. And he kind of got a little bit silly with it and was saying like, you know, purple Bibles, nobody knows that's a Bible if it's purple or something like that, right? And he was being intending to be silly about it, although that didn't come across. Immediately after the service, I had one of the youth parents come to me and says, I have a purple Bible. Is that okay? I said, it's fine. It's fine, <laughs> right? But he said he heard, he heard feedback about that sermon from people like months afterwards. People, you said only black Bibles can glorify the Lord, right? Now, he didn't mean that. What he meant was be intentional when you pick out a Bible, right? But because people misunderstood what he intended, that got spread around the community. Let me ask you a favor. If you think something I say from the pulpit or something that's said about me in the community sounds a bit off, you say, I don't know, would Justin say that? I don't, it doesn't sound like him or, 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 or that just sounds a little weird. I'm not sure if that's true. First of all, start by giving me the benefit of the doubt. All right, give me the benefit of the doubt, please. If you're hearing it secondhand, one, it's probably not true. It's just probably not true. I've heard a couple of the rumors that are even around town about me right now. They made me laugh right after it made me cry to think that something, that someone would believe that kind of ridiculous nonsense about me. Please, if you're concerned about something, please talk to me about it. Gossip is evil. One way to prevent gossip is to put on our adult pants and talk to each other. Gossip must not be tolerated among us, and we should take it very seriously because Scripture takes it seriously. When we reject gossip, our congregation will be a place of joy and unity. Peter says this really well in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Do you want to keep yourself from evil and see good days? Do you want our church to be kept from evil and to see good days? And we need to keep control of our mouths. If we want to be a unified, welcoming church that can make an impact for Gordon, Texas, we must be a church that rejects gossip and slander of each other and and rejects gossiping and slandering about those who we are called to serve. And finally, in your outline there, forgiveness is essential to unity. Forgiveness is essential to unity. Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, that is their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Unity in church will not happen if members have unforgiving hearts. Too many times members have anger and hurt because of something another member has said or done. Some members are angry and hurt at the pastor or staff because of something they said or did or failed to do. We're human too, guys. Paul put it very well in Colossians chapter 3. I had this bookmarked. There it is. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Put on then as God chosen, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Each local church is made up of imperfect members and imperfect pastors. We will make mistakes. We will all sin. Yes, we are all hypocrites. Church unity is torn apart when members refuse to forgive. When any member is too prideful to grant forgiveness, that destroys unity. Remember, Christ loved us so much that he died on a cross to forgive us. And now he has, now that he has, now he has forgiven us and we must forgive others. Forgiveness is essential to the unity of our church. We cannot hold grudges against one another. So then a final question we must ask ourselves, what are we unified around? We must be unified, but what do we unify around? What do we do? What, what should we, what should we find ourselves unified around? One and first and foremost is the glory of God. We must be unified around seeking God's glory. We must be unified around the idea that we want to be a church that Jesus wants us to be, not a church that we want to be. We must be unified around that idea that this is Jesus' church. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Jesus' church. What does he want from us? We must be unified around the idea that we, must, we want to reveal the glory of God to this community. We are here for the community. The community is not here for us. We are here for the community, and we are called to, glor- to, to reveal the glory of God to this community. And one other thing we can be unified around is unified around taking the gospel to the nations and starting in our own backyard. So move into this time of invitation. A couple of questions we need to ask. First of all, do you need Jesus? You've heard about this great Savior who died for our sins and gave us forgiveness. You can have access to that same forgiveness today through Jesus Christ. If you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you've not given your life to him, please don't hesitate to take the opportunity to ask Christ for your salvation. I'd love to share with you how you can do that. If you want to talk to me during the invitation or after the service, I can do that. Another question, we're talking about meaningful membership. If you're wanting to join the church, we would love to show how, you, how that could happen, how you could uh, take part in that process and, and be a part of, uh, of this church unity that we're seeking to uh, maintain here. 
Another thing, this may be a little bit more personal, but do you need to ask someone for forgiveness? Maybe as you've heard this message, there's someone even in this room that you say, you know what, I need to ask that person for forgiveness. Don't wait. If you walk out those doors and you haven't gone and tried to seek bringing that unity back together, you may not ever do it. During this time of invitation, just walk over to them, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, can I pray with you? And talk to them. Lastly, you'll see on there, there's the second pledge. As I mentioned, each of these messages end with a pledge. The second pledge having to do with being a unifying member is this. I am a church member. I will seek to be a source of unity in my church. I know there are no perfect pastors, staff, or other church members, but neither am I. I will not be a source of gossip or dissension. One of the greatest contributions I can make is to do all I can in God's power to help keep the church in unity for the sake of the gospel. Will you make that pledge today? Either at the altar or in your seat, will you make that pledge to the Lord today? Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you that your word is clear to us. Lord, we don't have to question and wonder what you would have us to do. We don't have to question and wonder what our church should be like. Because you have already revealed it to us. You've shown us in your word what that means and what that looks like. Lord, I know that sometimes, even if we have your word clearly in front of us, it's hard to respond to it. Because, Lord, we are sinful people. We may not always like what your word teaches, Lord, but we are, we are called to be obedient to it. I pray, Lord, that during this time of invitation, that we would commit to being unifying church members. I pray this in your name. Amen.